0: is gonna be the greatest night of our lives. Oh, okay. Fight!
1: I kill you.
0: Punch We gonna talk about it? Vanessa's cheating on me. Welcome to Phuket. You are checking in? Uh, yes. I was supposed to be here with my wife, but, um... Ooh, our honeymoon suite for the happy couple.
1: Uh, you skipped town without a word on your anniversary. That's pretty
0: badass. Don't wait up. We can celebrate tomorrow, and I'll make it up to you, I promise. What's your name? Brandon.
1: Hello, Brandon. My name's Penny. Don't worry, everything will be okay me and my buddy you're going to be here for a few days if you want
0: to give me your number.
1: Nah. You never liked her. I don't like how she treats you, how you let her treat you, or me. Remember when you said you wanted to marry her? You said it was because mostly she checked the right boxes. That's not love. Joe, slip! It's okay, B! You booked this trip over a year ago, and she's been having an affair the whole time?
0: You're here to solve something All these people From different worlds All together Wanting the same things To feel safe To feel love We all share that Don't you miss your life? How can I miss a life If I'm
1: busy living it? Why me?
0: Why not you? You wouldn't say I got my ass kicked, right? Oh, not too. Yeah, we're (laughs) brothers.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Film and Water Podcast. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, we will be discussing the comedy drama, Changeland. Changeland stars Seth Green as Brandon, a man who finds out on their anniversary that his wife is cheating on him. Instead of confronting her, he goes on the trip to Thailand he had planned for them, but invites his best friend Dan to come along in his wife's place. In between visiting beautiful vistas and meeting interesting people, he begins to find meaning in his life. Changeland stars, as I said, Seth Green as Brandon, Brecken Meyer as Dan, also starred Brenda Song, Claire Grant, Macaulay Culkin, R. William Sterling, Rose Williams, and Randy Orton. And joining me to talk about this wonderful movie is the producer of Changeland, Corey Musa. Hi, Corey. Hi, Rob. And the writer, director, star of Changeland, Seth Green. Hi, Seth. Hey, Rob. Thank you both for doing this. I really
0: appreciate it. So happy to be right here. On. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to talk about it.
1: Yeah, so uh, Corey introduced me to this movie a little while ago and told me that he had produced it. And we went out and my uh, fiance and I sat down and and watched it. And I have to say, we really loved this movie. Uh, We had no expectations as to what it was going to be going into it. I don't think that the, uh, like on the the internet descriptions, necessarily do it justice exactly as to how much is going on in this movie. But let's start at the very beginning. Seth, like, how did this whole thing come about?
0: it's got really simple origins. Um, I went on a trip, uh, like a five-week trip around the world with my friend Dan, and we spent about 72 hours, maybe uh four days in Thailand. And everything that happened on that part of the trip was so special and indescribable and funny and beautiful that while it was happening, I told my friend Dan that we were living in some kind of a movie. And I just started taking notes and imagining all these things that were happening to us fitting into some kind of a narrative. Um, because we were two men in locations that were typically reserved for honeymooners, everyone <laughs> thought that we were a couple. And so from the very first hotel that we arrived in and everywhere we went, everyone thought that we were a couple and treated us as such. They arranged candlelit moonlight dinners for us. <laughs> um, they... Covered our beds with rose petals. They gave us complimentary champagne. And Dan and I, at one point, were like, you know, we almost owe it to all these people to fuck tonight. Like, (laughs) I feel like we're letting them down. (laughs) They're putting so much effort towards us. And so along the way, everything that happened in the movie, um, except for all of the meanings of it, it happened to us. We went out on a snorkeling adventure with a guy who was an expat and uh, had reinvented himself in Thailand. We... We met um, newlywed uh, honeymooners that were this very brash guy and this incredibly reserved woman. And I, I even had a conversation with her about this wild and randy guy and did that bother her? And she said, you know, he's going to have his fun now, but by the end of the night, he'll be pitifully curled on my lap asking me to make the world stop spinning. And then sure enough, that's exactly what I saw. So, so many of the moments that are in the movie – legitimately happened, but they didn't have the, the deeper meaning. So uh, the, the struggle for me was, well, how do I write a movie about two best friends on this trip in a way that doesn't feel boring or trite? So I, I tried to create an emotional um, uh, crisis. At the center of it, and then see how that rippled across everybody else's story.
1: Wow, yeah, oh, that's amazing. get that line of dialogue you just put right in the movie about the the other couple. that's uh, that's amazing. So, Corey, how did you get involved with this?
0: Um,
2: how did I get involved with this? It was probably <laughs> what? Five years ago now, uh, Seth and I have a mutual friend that had introduced us, and uh, Seth and I were a pretty good match for one another. Um, in terms of our sensibilities and at this point Seth had written a preliminary script um, and he had shared that with me and that was kind of the beginning of our process and then um, we began to start developing the script from that point on and started kind of slowly putting the pieces together of it um, until we actually found ourselves in Thailand which was a pretty remarkable
1: achievement. At the end of the day, was it always going to be set in Thailand? Was it just that you fell in love with Thailand so much that you were like, "This is the setting. It's, you don't you don't want to transplant that story to another location? It's it's got to be Thailand because we're here and we love it so much." Well,
0: it yes, but it was also more specific than that. Like Thailand is so categorically far away from the U.S., and what I noticed while I was there was that. It felt like another planet entirely to the degree that I didn't think about any of the things that were really burdening me. I, I I was in a place so alien that it relaxed and calmed me and set me at ease to the point where I could have much larger, um, deeper thoughts. And I, I, I love the simplicity of locations or destinations that millions of people go to from all around the world to share some kind of experience i'm i'm tickled by the stuff that that lasts through time um i got to go to stonehenge and i asked one of the the uh, park rangers who dedicated his life to the stones i go well what is it right this guy had been studying them since he was a kid and now he was one of the the people that helped curate the the exhibit so that people could see it and enjoy it i'm like well what is it what are these things and he said, well, everyone's got their own theory, right? It's a burial ground. It's a sacred place. It's a prayer space. It's a sacrificial place. It's a place to induce trances through a uh, sonic phenomenon. Everyone's got a different theory. The truth is it's, you know, thousands of years old, and we don't even have the context to understand what the original intent of this place was. He said, but what we do have is the feeling that you get from being here in your time, in your body. And he said, that's what this is. It's something that human beings have shared for eons. And anyone who comes here feels it. So it doesn't matter what the intended purpose of this thing was. What it is now is something that all humans who visited have in common forever. And I love that idea. So I'm fascinated by that kind of concept. And in Thailand, that boat tour that we take in the movie through all the sea caves and the atolls um, and out to James Bond Island and Fang um, Nga Bay, like this is what every tourist that goes to Thailand, that goes to Phuket, that that uh, goes on tours in the Yandaman Sea, this is what they do. So filming that was really fun for me um, and using something, a destination like James Bond Island where literally millions of people travel to a year spend about 13 to 19 minutes on this island, and then never come back. That's a fascinating concept, right? And everybody that goes there does the same thing. They get off, they buy a trinket, they stand at one of the two Vista viewpoints, and they do a series of poses. They take a selfie in front of it, holding the rock. There's two people on either side pretending to push the rock, or you're you're balancing it on your nose, and everyone has the same look on their face. What the fuck are we doing here? Why am I striking this pose? Everyone that comes there shares that experience, and that was something that I just found fascinating and wanted to capture. Um, the, the the simplicity of visiting all of these different places and using them as a backdrop for friends trying to solve deeper problems.
1: When you were you know starting to set up the movie, I mean, were there particular like cinematic inspirations that you had for it? Because one of the things that I really enjoyed about Changeland was that it it is to me just as much about the place you guys are going to than what's and what's going on with the characters and, and specifically i think about like before sunrise which is my all-time favorite movie and that movie works as like a travelogue for vienna uh, or like <laughs> david david Lean's summertime which does the same thing for for uh, venice and to me that's part of the appeal of summerland is that i'm in uh, change excuse me is that i'm enjoying the story of the, what the characters are going through but also i am being transported to this place i've never really seen before so were there movies in the back of your mind of like i want to kind of go go after this feeling that you had
0: seen and enjoyed um i mean i love movies and it i could easily say that literally everything i've ever watched was inspiring for how i would try to accomplish this but i was uh, that that was definitely um at the forefront of my mind is the the reality that thailand is a character um and treating it as such giving giving our locations a point of view and a, uh, a feeling, um, in every scene. Um, it, it was, there, there really was no other place to shoot this because the movie is about, you know, getting far enough outside of yourself that you can see yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no other place that has this collection of impossible views and experiences. And it's not like the whole, we did talk about was, it, uh, Rob, like, it
2: was, uh, Uh, We we talked about potentially shooting the movie in Hawaii for a a brief minute, and there was no way to do that. There was no way to do that. We didn't want to change the location to Hawaii, and you weren't going to fake Thailand uh, for Hawaii. (laughs) Uh, So it it actually became a non-option. And then once we really settled on what we were going to do in being in Thailand, uh, the Thai government really started kind of helping us get out there and achieve that.
0: Um, That was part of the sales pitch all the way. And something that Corey and I talked about just as, as far as how to produce the movie is that there, there felt like an opportunity um, existed to not just get the government, the board of tourism, um, you know, the national parks, because the premise of the movie is so um, loving um, whereas a lot of the the films that shoot in Thailand are about police corruption or about drug trafficking or about the sex trade. <laughs> our movie is a very gentle, I I hope an honest uh, depiction of what it feels like to be there. Um, and so that was part of our sales pitch to all of the, the people that we, we wanted to get to help us make the movie was we're going to make all of this look incredible. We said that to every one of the locations. We, we said, we're going to set something in here that makes people remember this place and come here years after the film. Right. That's, that was the, that's the sales pitch.
1: I I do want to get back to that in a moment, but Corey, you, you brought up something about producing and I wanted to ask you about that. What is it like producing a movie that far away from, you know, presumably sort of Hollywood? I mean, what is it? What's, I mean I you said that Thailand was obviously very uh you know they were happy to have, have somebody there and producing this sort of positive but what is what's it like being that far away from the sort of center of I guess presumably where the money is coming from and where the, the everything everything else all the other decisions that are sort of being made and you're it, you're on the other side of the planet
2: it's uh it's a challenge um you know Working in another country is, is intimidating. It's not something that I, I hadn't done before, and, you know, Seth has done it before, and most of us who had worked on it had done it before, but Thailand really is on, like, the other side of the planet, and it's, it's really, like, just going somewhere you've never been before. You couldn't have really imagined it. Even when you walk out of the uh, airport for the first time and the weather and the humidity hit you, it's, it's kind of unreal, <laughs> and you're like, where have I arrived? <laughs> Um, so shooting in Thailand, uh, I was very scared to go out there. I had never visited Thailand. I was the first person from our team in the United States to get out there. And thankfully for us, um, we had been put in touch with this local production company in Thailand called Living Films, um, run by this awesome gentleman named Chris Lowenstein. And if it hadn't been for him and his vast experience, the... The entire idea, uh, it would have been so overwhelming, but he was able to really help us find the connection point to the locals and teach us about the culture enough that like we weren't offensive to anybody when we were trying to do what we were doing. Um, So he helped really bridge the gap, him and his partner, Oliver Ackerman, um, they just bridged the gap that we needed to have um, for the cultural barrier. And it was a very unique thing because within probably just the week of all of us working together, working with the local um, Thai crew, it it became such a a family experience. I felt more at ease with this group of people than I had ever felt working on an American uh, set before. And furthermore, the Thai crew, they were just magical. They worked so hard.
1: They worked so well.
2: It was unbelievable to me, really, that they were able to produce like such awesome things on a daily basis all of our needs they they exceeded all of our expectations
1: in such a an amazing positive way so like some of the locations that you scouted i mean like the the scene in the uh, with the buddhist temple with with uh, dan and brandon where they go and they talk to the, the they talk to the uh, the monk presumably and they dan instructs brandon on what the, the ritual is there like where how do you how do you scout that? I mean, how, like, how do you? Is it? Was is that? Is is that something set that you had already found? Is said, boy? We'd love to shoot this, or and how does that? How does that come about?
0: That funny. So I, I actually just looked over some old notes, and it was three drafts before we were shooting it that that whole sequence was a completely different thing. Corey, do you remember when when I wrote that as a spa? Yeah, as it was like was a massage <laughs> scene Well, it was I, this so was, this became so confusing to people, but I. I have always thought that, like, and I'm not talking about any kind of sexualized thing. I mean, like, when you have a really good massage, it can put you in an elevated place. And the whole point in that moment was to give Brandon a little bit of relief from all the pressure that had been building up in him, um, all the anger, all the frustration. I wanted a moment of release there that, that let him feel lifted um, after that change. That's why we, we hard cut directly to sunlight. Um, after that sequence, but, um, several drafts of it, everybody that read it was like, I don't understand. Does he just get jerked off in this thing? And I was like, no, it's like, what? <laughs> what How the fuck did you know? <laughs> no. And so I, I was like, oh, I've got to make this into something different. I've got to have like a stru- a stronger structure for a scene of evolution for this guy. And so I came up with the idea of very cause there's all these very basic, um, meaningful Buddhist prayers. Um, really simple things that just are, you know, like guidance, uh, like the five lines, that kind of thing, where it's where it's the basic, most um, important teachings of the Buddha, right? So I thought, okay, well, this will be a good. And I knew it should be a temple, and we wanted something special, so it, it's just our location scouts gave us several different good options, and then when we when we saw that cave temple. Everybody agreed, well, if we're allowed to shoot here, this is where we shoot. There's nothing like this. We wanted something that looked like an oasis in the darkness when the boys are walking down that path. And then they come to this cave of lights like it was just unbeatable. Once we had that location, then Patrick Bruce and I spent a bit of time talking about how to make it feel on film the way it feels in person. Yeah, I don't know what we would have done without him. Like, I'm, I'm so grateful that we got to make this movie together.
1: Well, I, yeah, I specifically wanted to talk about uh, Patrick Ruth, the cinematographer, because this movie is gorgeous. I mean, it is just yeah. gorgeous. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what your, what your budget was on this film. I know it surely wasn't <laughs> Avengers Endgame or anything, but I mean, this, no. I, you know, I mean, but this thing, this thing is gorgeous looking. And it, it's, you know, I was like, wow, I can't imagine what. like the film looks probably way more expensive than it is i would say i mean it's just it's so beautiful and so talk about working with him a little bit because i mean it's like you 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 went into it sort of saying i want to capture this kind of look this sort of very saturated beautiful i mean the 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 way the colors pop at night and then again the the sort of like uh aqua colored sky i mean this thing is you said it's just simply there's so many shots of this that are like, you know, like, uh, postcards. I mean, they're just beautiful. So I'm going to talk about working with him.
0: Yeah. Um, I had two other DPs, uh, one that I thought for six years during the development of this was going to shoot it. And he was unavailable when we actually got a green light. And so I went after another guy who I've known for years and he had a regular job on a, um, on an hour long. So neither of them were available. So I turned to everyone. I was like, ah, guys, I need great DP recommendations. And um, a good friend of mine, Casey Tebow, uh, recommended, well, actually, what he did was he sent me an email, and he said, okay, here's three top choices, but now I'm going to explain to you why you should pick Patrick Ruth. (laughs) And he sent me Patrick's Reel, which had a bunch of work on it, um, and especially, uh, one thing I noticed was a, a commercial 32nd spot that involved a, a rowboat and a lighthouse. And there's no dialogue in it, but the visual storytelling and the way that he was able to capture what it feels like to be lost at sea and find some, um, respite. Like I said, Oh man, this is my guy. So then I called Patrick, I sent him the script and we talked about it. Um, and he was game for it, but I had no idea. Uh, I knew he was going to be awesome, but we clicked so fast and came up with a, um, a near-psychic a near kind of communication when we were in the, in the field. It was, it was just awesome.
2: There's no question that he elevated the film to another level, which is exactly what we were looking for. And it was, it was challenging interviewing Patrick. We were in Thailand already, and Patrick was in Boston and it was difficult. I mean, you'd asked before, like, yes, the communication from Thailand um, back to the United States created some challenges just in terms of, like, we kind of needed to be available 24 hours a day to deal with the problems that were happening in the United States or um, figuring out things that we needed to figure out that were stateside, and then also doing everything we needed to happen in Thailand. Yeah, Patrick's oh a good example of that. Like, the only time we could really talk to him was, like, in the middle of the night. Um, well, the first time we met in person was when he arrived in Thailand to shoot. Yeah, he got right off the plane and went on a scout
1: without sleeping. Like, <laughs> very <laughs> impressive. This film was shot digitally, I assume? Yeah, uh, we did, yeah. Okay. So, so
0: Corey, so mean, mean... We shot on the Alexa,
2: right? Yes, it was the Alexa. I don't remember which model of the Alexa. Um
0: it was great. It did really well for us, um, even in the heat. But, but I got to I got to emphasize again, like the Thai crew was so world class and not just hardworking, but so excellent. Um, like we were changing lenses um, in chest high water, you know, <laughs> it's, it was it was that kind of operation where we're all in a, a literal sea cave racing against the tide before this entire thing drowns us. It was, it was really, it was fun and like a high wire act every day.
1: Corey, were there any, when you were out there, were you there the whole time during the whole shoot? I was there. I was there the whole time.
2: I was the first one. Tell them about your broken leg. Yes. And on a broken leg, Rob. You broke your leg? I didn't. I broke my leg like, (laughs) I broke my leg like a couple of days before I went to Thailand. Jeez. And I mean, it's, just sad. My 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 I, my cat broke my leg. My cat like tripped me, and I was trying to avoid being tripped and or hurting the cat falling, and I
0: I like broke my own leg. <laughs> and but the be- the best part is during scouting, all the pictures of Corey getting piggybacks through the water from <laughs> our our location supervisor into a sea cave. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Probably did not have the wisest, like, um, you know, recovery of a broken leg, but it was quite an adventure. And I did get to be piggybacked around on a lot of people's backs. Um, our location manager, Rob, is actually, um, one of the stars of the movie.
0: he yeah, um, plays
2: Clahan. He plays Clahan, um, uh, Macaulay Culkin's character, Ian's
0: kind of sidekick, who's oh, driving. Oh, wow.
1: Him. Okay. Okay.
0: Well, that, that was the actual fun of the movie was, um. I, I told everybody uh, that anybody who wanted to be in the movie could be in the movie. And so we cameo like 90% of our crew uh, throughout the film. We Anytime we had a scene that required specific background, we just threw somebody in it. Um, and the scene where we're all running in the street, um, I'd had this idea of having local people looking at this, you know, parade of lunatics from the States. Um, and our script supervisor and our camera AC, uh, agreed to do it. (laughs) So when we're all running past those people and those two, uh, Thai locals give us a kind of a dirty look, that's our script supervisor and our first camera AC.
1: (laughs) Well, that's all right. This is a perfect time to talk about the the cast of this movie. I mean, I want to start with you, Seth, because I mean, I would assume that when you write a film, you're writing it to put yourself in it. I would assume. Uh, but at the same time, like Brandon is so different than anything I've seen you do because he is so emotionally inert. And most of the time you're playing people that are very quick-witted and high energy and they talk fast. So, I mean, what was it like playing someone who is just so stone-faced a lot of the time?
0: Um, I don't I don't know. I guess it's the same as playing anything for me. Like, um, I really just wanted to be true to what that character was going through. Um, and it's, it's interesting cause the, I didn't even, I don't think I realized until I was editing, um, the, the, the few points that I gave in the performance, right? I didn't realize the few high points or I, I, um, I didn't realize until I was editing how, how sort of, uh, monochromatic it seemed. Um, but from a, From a preparation standpoint it didn't, i didn 't approach it any differently than I approach anything else in, in fact I, it, I, I almost had leeway to go lower because I knew I could count on brecken to <laughs> to be Dan right like yeah, to be the Dan in those scenes
1: i, I couldn 't help it when I watched the movie and i 've seen it i think three times now i couldn 't help it when I watched it that how yeah. much of what a plumb part you gave Meyer? because as Dan, he gets to be charming and funny and he gets, I mean, it's like he is the best friend everyone would want uh, yeah. in real life. He's the guy who's when you're, when you're down and out, he comes and he's trying to cheer you up. I mean, it's a marvelous performance. He's so funny. And, and he's such a great contrast to you because you're just so kind of miserable <laughs> through most of the movie. <laughs> and here's, and he's just, you know, and even, even when he tries to hit on, uh, he tries to hit on the, 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 one of the, the boat tour women and the way she rejects him. And he just kind of goes, all right. And he just takes it like, you know, it's like, it, it's so utterly charming. Like, oh, well, I wish everyone was like this. So, I mean, did you always intend to have him in the movie to, for him to play Dan?
0: Um, yeah. Well, actually, originally when I wrote it, I thought, and I mean, originally, like I, I wrote eight different or six, six completely different drafts of the script and like two revisions on each one of those drafts. So like really early on, I thought I would play Dan and that Brecken would play Brandon. And somewhere oh, wow. around the the third draft, um, I realized that I was going to play Brandon and he would play Dan. Um, but, But, you know, I had a lot of things I knew about this. I knew that it was going to be expensive to shoot in Thailand. And I knew it was going to be difficult to get a budget that would support this kind of movie, um, just the way that independent movies are made. This wasn't going to be the hangover and it was never going to be something that, that needed 800 screens to perform. And so everything that I, I, I did was trying to figure out how to make this as inexpensively as possible. Um, and part of that came down to casting. It's, it's knowing not just that you have somebody with enough name value to make the marketing people happy. It's knowing that I've got actors in place who are going to come prepared, who are going to show up with ideas and who are going to be great. Even if we only get one or two takes of each scene. Hmm.
1: What's it like directing your, your, your family and friends? What's that? I mean, you're the boss, but you know, they're still your family and friends.
0: I just don't. I, you know, I don't think about it as that. I don't really like uh, the hierarchy concept, but I definitely respect the idea that there comes a point where people need a, um, a decision maker. Um, and so I've always been okay with doing that, with getting everybody's collective um, ideas and then saying, all right, this is how we're going to do it. And so, you know, an actor, as an actor, all you really want is a confident vision from your director. And I just tried to make sure that with every one of my performers, I had that. But we did rehearsals wherever possible. I got the, you know, the characters to come and rehearse scenes together with me. Um, I talked through all the details with everybody, but I'm also not, um, I'm not an intrusive director. Like this, this kind of movie needs to feel like it's happening in real life. So I wanted everybody's performances to feel very natural. And as a result, I I didn't give them a lot of notes um, unless it was something that I specifically had to have them say or do. Right. I let everybody kind of bring their own thing for, to it and then just give it to me.
2: Well, that it was uh... Uh... It was kind of a necessity in terms of, when you think about it, Seth, in terms of who our cast ended up being and what your previous relationship was with everybody. Because as Seth is saying, we're trying to make this movie in an affordable way. We're shooting in another country. We have a limited schedule and we're being pretty ambitious about what it is we're trying to do. So the fact that the working relationship that Seth had with Brecken, um, with Mac, with Brenda, with Claire, with everybody... Um, everybody knew each other for the most part in some way, which allowed there to be a real easiness about being able to get into character, being able to be comfortable and being able to move through your day. So you're not getting stuck in any particular moment. And with Seth directing the movie and starring in it, he's got a tremendous job of having to look at the monitor and direct everybody and direct the art department and all of the different departments, and then also has to deal with his own performance. And so to do all of those things, you have to move quickly. And having the cast that we had allowed us to be able to do that.
1: I mean, I don't think we could have made the movie with a different group of people. Um, There you go. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's, again, that's something else I wanted to ask about, Seth, is that directing yourself, I've read enough books uh, about movies and, and listened to like commentary tracks where... Often, when you've got the director is also the star this, the, the the star side of it, the actor side of it tends to maybe suffer a little because they're they're so worried about keeping the film on schedule and getting the shots like Corey just talked about do you Did you run into that? do like you feel like you were you know having to as actor Seth Green, you have to make sure that you're delivering what you need versus what director Seth
0: Green needs oh yeah, Well, you've got to be conscious about what it is that you're putting on camera um of course the 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 choice that i made was to not really watch playback unless it was critical uh especially for the stuff that i'm uh performing just to so we're not wasting time i've worked on movies where the star is either directing or um has has uh, a, a very important say in it and they watch every single take after you shoot it and that just it kills your momentum it eats up your time and it's not it's not always necessary. So I just made sure that I was always communicating with Corey, with Chris, with Oliver, with Patrick about what we were accomplishing in any given moment. Especially if I'm on camera, it's like, this is what I'm hoping to achieve. Let me know when we get it. Um, and then we would just move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I noticed, and this is this is just uh, an interesting thing, I, as an actor, didn't quite realize – how much work I typically do between cut and action, right? So as a performer, when that's your sole responsibility, between cut and action, I just take notes, I assess what I previously did, and then I map out what's going to happen next or I put myself in the right headspace so when action is called, I'm in the scene. And what I found myself doing on this project so often was being the one to call cut and then giving everybody instructions and then and then saying we're ready to roll and then the ad calls action so i gave myself a lot less time to really snap into character post action but the the reason that it didn't uh, bother me as much is i'd spent so much time in the preparation especially in the writing of it and all of my director prep um and any of my my uh, prep as a performer so that I could shortchange that uh, time period, right? So that when when they called action, I was ready, or at least had at least done all my other work.
1: Notcha. So Macaulay Culkin in this movie—did he ad lib any of his lines? Because it. It feels like a yeah. whole character's that's the that's where he could there there are moments where he's talking where I feel like some of you are looking at
0: him and I get this sense that you're not exactly
1: sure what he's about to say.
0: <laughs> well, um I, I gave Mac a couple of promises with making this movie. I told him one, he could do whatever he wanted, and two, um he wouldn't have to do any press. And so he was like, <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, And I brought him out to Thailand for the run of the picture. So he was there for three or four weeks before he even started shooting. He was just getting tan and exercising (laughs) and having a really good time. He built a lot of ancillary content as Ian. Um, He put together like Ian's awesome training video. And it's so silly. He really, he really just ran with it, but he, when at our first table read, Mac pitched a couple of lines and every single one of them is in the movie. It was so good. Um, Mac pitched that line um, when Brandon doesn't jump off the rock. Uh, Mac pitched that line in the table read. Well, that was embarrassing. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that's such a fucking strong button. And it also is incredibly true to this character. So I I really just let him do what he wanted. And then he impromped all over the place too. That scene in the bar which is based on a real moment um, where Mac drinks that entire children's sand pail and then slams it down and screams "fight, fight, fight!" at all those people in the crowd. <laughs> he he improved the the fight, fight, fight and scared so many people. You see uh, in the movie, the last person that he screams at, they jump. They like they had no idea that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> what was in those buckets? Is it just like colored water? Um, yeah, it was like Kool-Aid for the movie. It was right, the right. darkest, the darkest yes. mixture we could make. But in yes. the, in real, in the, in the real world, you can go to the reggae bar and get one of those buckets right. and it is, it'll, it'll, it'll fucking kill you, man.
2: They give you, they give you that bucket as an incentive. You, you drink a free bucket. You get to go, you, if you're going to go fight, you get a bucket. So they want you to get really, really wasted and then get into the ring and act like a tourist and embarrass yourself, um, and those buckets are filled with every single kind of liquor it's just poured into that bucket.
0: But <laughs> when uh, Dan and I really went on this trip back in two thousand and nine, um, our dive master Ian took us to the other side of Kopi B to watch him fight in the ring and i've got video of this guy, and part of what was so funny. He kept getting knocked down, kept getting his legs swept under, out from under him. But he would just leap back up like a like a pogo stick. It was insane, uh, like a weeble, You know what I mean? Um, and originally, the whole scene with Mac was going to follow that, but it it became more important from a narrative setting for him to win that fight and for Brandon to be inspired to get in there.
1: Mm. So, how did you end up
0: with uh, Randy Orton in this in this movie? <laughs> oh my gosh, this is such a good a good tale. So way back in 2009, I was the I've the distinct honor of being the first celebrity guest host of Monday Night Raw. And I not only GM several matches, but found myself in a six-man tag team uh with Triple H and John Cena versus Randy Orton and the Legacy. Um uh and <laughs> Randy and I um had some in-ring beef and uh <laughs> We milked that for the next several years, like like Andy Kaufman and David Letterman. Um, <laughs> and i got I knew this character needed to be a big guy, like not just a big guy, but a guy who had presence without saying a word or moving at all and Randy is a very um, dynamic performer. he's physically massive, he has a gravity to him without moving. And he also has the sweetness that never really gets exposed. And so that's what I wanted. Um, that's what I wanted. I wanted somebody that felt like that, that you see on film and you are both frightened, but that when he speaks and talks about people and loving human beings and <laughs> you know what I mean? I yeah. wanted it to have, I wanted it to have something to it. Um he was so great. He's got a marvelous so voice. Him, I know and he when he smiles you're like, oh, "I feel you, man." I really feel <laughs> you. So but I also wanted him to feel dangerous. I wanted him to feel like a threat. So um I put him on boxes in every scene um and in the scene where we go to uh take the special drink at the end of the movie, I put him about 4 feet closer to the camera than I am to make him look <laughs> even bigger. It's like a Lord of the Rings look thing. Even <laughs> Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. When that we that scene where, now. that scene where he says to you the you and Dan where he says, uh, "You know, what are you two doing here?" It's, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> it's just terrifying. It's just like, oh my god, yeah. this guy's gonna rip me in two. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it
0: had to be. Yeah.
1: All right. So, all right. So, I before we move off the I, the cast, there's one other question I have to ask the two of you because it's it's driving me nuts. Is there's a scene where uh, you, uh, Brandon and Dan are at this bar? It's before all the all that stuff. It's before the nighttime stuff. But there's another scene where you're at a bar, uh, just like a, a stand up bar, and you're you're you get a drink, and there's a bartender behind you <laughs> who is not moving, and then yeah. you guys cut away. And you, you cut back, and it's the two of you again in the same position, and you're drinking. And this bartender oh, no. does not move. And after the fourth cutback, that the fact that he's not moving, I, for the first time I watched the film, I went, is that like a digital shot? Because that guy's not moving. And then I saw his shirt flap in the breeze, and I went, oh, no, 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 he's really there. What, what was that guy? Why is he not moving at all?
0: Yeah. Well, so that whole sequence is meant to be kind of a watershed moment for Brandon. He and Dan have hit, like, the highest point of their conflict, and Brandon, uh, everything that he's been holding in is is meant to come out. And I had always seen that scene. Um, when Dan and I went on this trip, one of the places that we went on that boat tour was to this gorgeous white sand beach in Nga Bay, where there's nothing on this tiny island except this beachfront, but they had constructed a bar, and they had a ton of lounge chairs set up and a bunch of umbrellas, and so people came there on on their tour and like hung out for half an hour before they got back on the road. And there was a swing, and I've got pictures of me and my friend Dan having the greatest time of our lives on this swing. And so I thought, oh, I'd love to set a scene here that's a little sad, a little melancholy, and have the boys make up right? Have the boys make up over just uh, a moment that they share that doesn't even have words. And I imagined them wordlessly seeing this swing and then like a comedic cut against the music that would get a laugh, right? So especially getting that Otis Redding song and having it timed right to the music with those, those horns, it's, it's incredible. Um, that's what I wanted. And so when I went on this trip the guy tending bar was wearing a gigantic Afro wig. And this guy had an incredible smile and just sort of assessed us without saying anything and then gave us these massive drinks with a smile. And I was trying to replicate that. And I realized where the communication, um, where the, the difficulty in translation comes, right? So I wrote Afro wig thinking this, this really ridiculous cartoony kind of a, a wedding photo booth Afro wig. And instead we got this beautiful, hyper-realistic, buoyant Afro wig. And right then I should have known, oh man, I, I, the translation is getting a little sloppy. So I cast this guy based on his smile. He has the most beautiful, light-filled, radiant smile. Like he has such a joy that came from him. I was like, that's our guy. And when we got there that day to shoot, he didn't speak a word of English. So I'm trying to translate what I want him to do through interpreters. And I said, okay, so this guy sees us come up. We're walking up the beach and you look at us both. Just take a moment to assess us. You know what we need. You're going to give us these drinks and just slide them across the counter. And So that got explained to him. <laughs> and um, I don't know how it was explained to him, but he <laughs> took a, a very exaggerated um, you know, assessment of both of us and, and a big smile. And I said to the translator, okay, a little bit less, less, less than that, like just a little bit less. And so we did another take and I was like, even, even less, like right when we come up, just give us a smile and slide these drinks across. And he was like, I totally, totally got it. And, <laughs> and then um, it, it was still a little t- too much. So I was like, okay, well uh, just, y- you know, don't, don't, don't really do anything. Just Um, like when we, when we show up, give us a smile and slide the drinks across and then, and then don't, and then don't really do anything. And so that got translated to him and I don't know how to, he, he stood right, uh, in the back of the frame and literally didn't blink or do anything. (laughs) And I was like, oh man. And you know, as a, as a director or as an actor, I really understand the kind of general panic that sets in especially when you're trying to do what you think someone wants and you you know it's not quite to their liking. And so I just, I didn't want this guy who was incredibly sweet and uh, based on his uh, audition, like an, a, a great performer, I didn't want to uh, hurt his feelings um, or uh, make him feel like anything was off. Because at the end of the day, it was something I could use. And I thought it would just be, I thought it would just be funnier. Um, and then when we were cutting it, um, the timing on it, I really wanted certain cuts to hit on the music in very specific ways. And Elizabeth, our editor, she was the first person that found all this extra footage of the other honeymooners and couples, uh, walking together. I only had this one scene written in the script where the old man, uh, helps the old woman into her chair and they have like a really sweet moment. And that's too much for Brandon. That's as far as he can go before he's like, fuck, I actually wanted that. I thought I was headed there. And I don't, I don't get any of that. My relationship is, is over, right? That was going to be the breaking point. And so Elizabeth, um, cut the scene even tighter, which gave us those jump cuts in between the moments with the bartender. So it, it looks, I think even stranger than it was intended because <laughs> of the way that we cut it. You don't get the context for, for what has happened, but
2: I yeah. look at it as yeah. like a stylized moment in the film that, especially with the Otis Redding, you know, playing with it, that, Uh, It it became like a really stylized, interesting moment. It's almost a dreaminess to it, especially with the chair that they end up in being so oversized and they're so small. (laughs) uh, I love how it ended up working out, that segment, even though it's
0: very funny. Yeah, I'd love to take credit for it and call myself Wes Anderson, but it's, you know, I was (laughs) just trying to catch a slice of life. And that's what that's what we got.
1: It's almost, it's almost like an old-timey movie where the background is a painted set, except that guy's painted because he just doesn't move. It's
0: amazing. So, all right, so- it really is so sweet. And uh, by my understanding, he's still giving tours in uh, <laughs> in Thailand. And now he's, he's using our movie as a point of reference. Like I hope everybody does. Yeah. Like the guy in that speedboat, I hope he has really – I hope it's boosted his speedboat business and that everyone for the rest of his career – Asks him to eat the sandwich. Oh, the eating the
1: sandwich guy. Right, right. right. So, so, okay. So, so along the way, when the, when the, you know, the film's being made, where, where did you guys decide to come up with some of the visual details? Because I noticed some things like, first of all, obviously the room number F451. I mean, that jumped out at me as, okay, this is this moment. This is why this room. But like, even in the opening credits, where all, I notice all the opening credits are over your face. You are purposefully (laughs) obscured. In the opening, you are not to be seen until the credits are over. Where along the process is that? Are those decisions sort of made? Obviously, the room number you have to have it ready on the set, but I mean, where is it in the script? Is it as
0: you're making it? I think all the Easter eggs we came up with as we were going. Um, once we got into a like a tech a tech meeting and started really mapping out what we were going to need, then then some of the stuff started to take shape. Because um, I had this. Uh, I don't know. I just had the realization that it could bury whatever you want in the movie. Like you could put anything anywhere and it could some of the things could make a point or some of the things could be just random or some of the things could even create a separate subplot that is that recontextualize the movie that you're watching. And we just thought that was really fun. So the whole time we were working on I started pitching what the sequel to the movie would be and how that would be more of a like rush hour style action comedy um, (laughs) that posits Dan as a, an international spy using being a fashion photographer as a cover to get him into high security places.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's perfect because of course this film has an end credit scene. Uh, yeah. <laughs> featuring featuring Dan and I'm like, is this the establishment of the Changeland cinematic universe? I mean, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> what's yeah, yes. We were really
0: we were really close to getting um, Nick Fury to walk in, and then we decided <laughs> shooting in the, in the old uh, airplane cockpit was good enough for us. Um, on the day that we on the day that we shot uh, all the stuff of airplane interiors, it was at uh, some some hangar uh, where they have a bunch of fuselage that people use, like in the same place where they shot Soul Plane, I guess.
2: It was the only thing we shot in the U.S. We shot after we shot in Thailand. We rented a basically a fuselage in Van Nuys. But while we were
0: there, they had a bunch of cockpits. And I, we, we pitched on the day, like wrapping up our day early enough that we could light and shoot in another cockpit. And then called Will Wheaton on the day. And I was like, buddy, is there any way that you can be here by like six o'clock? And he was like, Do you, I'll bring my fucking sunglasses. Like that's that was the <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so silly it's just so silly but that's that's the fun of it you make a you make a movie um but you have a lot we had a lot of fun doing it so so yeah all that stuff kind of happened in the tech meeting i guess but then it was to scramble to get shit like the dharma beer um on on site (laughs) Is that something now, Corey? Is that
1: something like you're talking about, like uh, shooting back in in Los Angeles or Van Nuys for that scene? Like, what what along where along the process does that come up? I mean, like, wh- when when did that scene get added? Was that always in the script? This the the end credit sequence The tag? It was a last minute decision. <laughs>
2: we were we were having fun. We were really excited because in this place where you would shoot any airplane scene, basically in a movie, they had the cockpit from airplane that they shot in wow. and we wanted to shoot there and we just got silly. I mean, I remember doing it like yeah. you, me, Breckin,
0: we were all just kind of brainstorming. Oh, we had a whole day. Yeah. We had a whole day set aside to shoot in fuselage. We have a bunch of scenes inside planes in the movie. One that got cut when we first get on the plane and uh, Brandon and Dan talk about Brandon having spent his grandma uh, inheritance uh, on this trip. Um, right, it was, it was to, sense. yeah, it was to make the point about Brandon never buying anything nice for himself. And then he splurged on this trip, which was supposed to be one thing, but now he's going to have to take it for himself. And instead we just wound up taking little pieces so that you see me trying to relax on the plane. You see like other passengers boarding the plane. Um, and while we were there, we were like, oh, fuck it. If we finish early, let's shoot a post credit tag in the cockpit. <laughs> and I'll tell you the truth. It was while we were in the sound mix, Patrick stumped says God, we need some kind of sound out, like we need some kind of closed cue that really feels like an Indiana Jones uh sting at the end of it. And he composed it on his computer in the um uh the board room at at uh, Sky Sound like just just did it put it in and then it's in the movie. Like that's <laughs> that was that was kind of the way we did things. It's so it's all like, right. yeah. So... This go here. Let's put it in.
1: I definitely want to talk to you guys about the the soundtrack, because that's a whole separate thing. But before I move on, just one other couple things I want to ask about the the movie itself. Like, I noticed, aside from the the, the cinematography, uh, there were some really ambitious shots uh, in this movie. Some they look like you know were they like hel- helicopter shots or drone shots? These yeah. sort of sweeping panoramic shots of Thailand, and you know, again, I you know I don't know the, you know, the details of the production, but like. Are there sacrifices that you need to make budget wise to be able to get shots like that where you say this shot is going to make the film look so much bigger. So we're going to we're willing to sacrifice in this other area to get this shot. I mean, how how do you sort of budget that? Because some some of the shots look,
0: you know, just amazing. Well, Corey, you could probably speak to if there was any sacrifice made. But we had calculated drunk photography um, on a couple of key sets uh, in the planning of the movie And then we were lucky enough to have An incredible drone pilot Like an unbelievably precise And competent drone pilot Who gave us shots that made it look like A Michael Bay movie um, <laughs> It was yeah. actually in the production That we thought about making an action movie Because we had all these tools And resources and locations available to us Fight coordinators like All of this stuff that felt like We could literally make an action film If we just had a different script, (laughs) but instead we just utilized all that technology and capability to make something that was pretty,
2: you know, and it's only like one day, uh, Rob, when we, we rented the drone basically and had it with us on a day that we knew that, uh, we wanted to get shots of Seth and Brecken in the motorboat. And we basically just had a number of boats in the ocean, um, that we were using the, the drone would fly off of one boat and then fly alongside, uh, Seth and Brecken in another boat, and then come back on the boat we were on and land. Um, it was all actually very impressive to watch the drone operator just catch this flying yeah. helicopter in his hand um, <laughs> every time it was he landed. We did sacrifice um, one shot once because we just ran out of time, and the weather got to us on a day. Do you remember when we had the massive rain come down and we never... I do, I do. We have the scene with Seth and Brecken walking oh, off yeah. of the boat onto the beach and um, meeting um, There's a, the, the and hotel. Was, sorry,
0: I don't mean to inter- interrupt. It, no, it was good, like the, the, the thing that we had seen that I really wanted to capture, and we wound up capturing it in a different, in a different place. There's this phenomenon that happens with incredibly shallow beach and rising tide where you get um, what looks like people walking on water uh, far off into the distance. And one of the things that the hotels took into consideration was the way the tide was when uh, guests would arrive. And so they had things like tractors meet your boat in incredibly shallow water and then drive you in your bags onto shore. And I wanted to capture that, um, but we got rained out and it, it ultimately wasn't important. Um, we were able to capture that idea in the scene with the white sand beach and with the swing uh, with Brandon and Dan sitting in that sort of infinite uh, glassy water as the time came in.
1: I guess that's 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 amazing to say because I thought some of the shots were just I was like, wow, this is how did he how did they get these shots? I mean they're just really, really <laughs> impressive. Um, so right on. one of my favorite aspects of this movie, and I'm trying not to give too much away for anyone who hasn't seen the film, uh, but one of my favorite aspects of this movie is that there are no uh forced external conflicts in the third act, which I think a lot of formula movies have where it's like, there's a misunderstanding or, or there's a robbery, you know what I mean? Some thing to yeah. kind of like goose it. And it isn't that, this movie just sort of moves along at the, at, at the pace that you would sort of expect real life to happen. And like the scene where, uh, where, where Brandon gets hauled off, uh, Randy Orton's character takes Brandon and, <laughs> meets, and he meets those two scary dudes um, the one guy <laughs> reminds me of like Albert Finney from, from under the volcano. And then you get the other guy who looks like Hunter S Thompson. And it's like, <laughs> and think in, a, in, a, in, a, in a lot of other movies, like that would be like this, you know, there would be a chase and there would be, you know, there'd be, and it, there, it, it doesn't unfold that way at all. And that was something I really enjoyed that. It was just, these are just this guy's experience and there's no forced kind of movie contrivance being jammed into this. So when, when you were pitching the movie, was there any external sort of movie produ- not producer, was any sort of a studio kind of saying, ah, we got to, you know, we got to gin this up a little bit, or was it just, they were whoever financed it, accepted the
0: script as you had it. Yeah, we, we, uh, there was, you know, in the earliest drafts of it, I had a first act reveal that Vanessa, uh, uh, that, that Brandon, it was just a different, I, I, I did it so many different ways. Like, um, there was a version where Dan and Brandon met on this trip and it's a, it's a first act reveal that Vanessa's left. Right. And I tried to create different conflicts. And if you, if you watch the movie, there is, there is a semi traditional formula to the way that things roll out. It's just the stakes are not as heightened as they feel like they would need to be in a, in a more commercial movie. Right. There's So when when Yeah. When we're at the waterfall and Brandon's kind of, dealt with his own failure of not being able to jump off the rock. And he's like, I'm going to take this hike and I'm going to do something important. I'm going to find some, some, some peace or awakening or an epiphany. And he stands under that waterfall and nothing happens. And then he's just cold and wet and feels fucking stupid. And his friend is like, well, what do you want to do, man? Do you want to reiterates the thesis? Like the only decision you have to make is whether you're going to fight for this or not. Everything else is on the other side of that question. Like, Are you in it or are you out? Because that's the only question that matters. And he reiterates that to Brandon, who in that moment is miles from home and hates himself for having been such a coward in the relationship, his own failures in the relationship to be the one that got cheated on. And he wants to fucking go home. And so for the first time in the movie... Like visually, I was hyper conscious to always have Dan in the lead. Like whenever you see the boys walking, Dan's always in the lead. And then that moment after the waterfall, Brandon's in the lead. And the only thing that he's leading to is going home. And so when, when Dan comes to knock on his door to lure him out for the night that they've already promised other people, Dan, Brandon doesn't want to go. And that's as, that's as much of a, end of second act conflict as I Mm. thought was important because you're not, I I hate movies or or stories about lifelong best friends who have a conversation about, well, I just don't know if we can be friends anymore. Like that always feels like bullshit to me. And your, your best friends are the ones who call you out on your shit and hold you accountable. And even if you hate it, that's why you're friends. And I really wanted that to be at the core of this movie. So the, the conflict is as simple as, as Brandon retreating back into his shell, And wanting to give it all up and Dan insisting that we're going to go further. And he takes him out on that last night. And that's where the magic happens. It's it's a little formulaic, like they both kiss a girl. Um, and, but I I wanted to make it more meaningful than all that. Um, I wanted it to feel, it's why Penn says that thing to him. You know, he's like, give me your number. And she says, you know, that was just between us and we'll share it forever. Mm -hmm. Those are, my favorite kind of moments, these significant ones that are just a moment, like visiting James Bond Island. Brandon had this amazing shift in himself, and every one that he met, every thing that he interacted with was a part of it.
1: So when you were when you were shopping the script around, there was never any uh, indication that anyone this this is it, this is the script, and there was no there wasn't anybody else saying, eh,
2: can we. There was her. a ton of people saying <laughs> can you try this can we do this can we do that and there were certain compromises we were not willing to make with this particular film and it just kind of was what it was you you either take it as it is um or you don't and we were fortunate enough to find the partners that understood what we were trying to do and allowed us that freedom to work with within
0: that was- but, but part of the part of the 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 uh part of that task is like risk management right so we had to make this movie cost so little that it was essentially a negligible investment for anybody that was going to support it and to that end we were given a lot of creative freedom because it's such a minimal a minimum of investment right so then then they're like okay well as long as it checks these couple boxes you you need you need somebody in it that's going to be attractive to the marketing, and that was what I tried to do. I tried to put together a cast that was representative of the experience that I had had, um, but also people that would help us to market and promote the movie.
2: We, we had to work within c- confines still, like, um, um, we had some sponsors, uh, Chang Beer was one of our sponsors, um, and Like, there's a scene in the movie that we would have had that would have been a perfect opportunity to product placement it where, uh, you know, Brecken is buying those two beers um, on the 7-Eleven boat and shares one with the young boat driver. Right. (laughs) And Chang Beer was like, "Uh, we can't show underage drinking with our product, which is basically how we came to turning those beers into... Dharma initiative beers.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was the, that was the best uh, part of our like production tech meeting was the realization that we, we needed some no name beer. And I was like, well, what if we just got those cans that say beer on them, like from lost? <laughs> and then Corey and I looked at each other and I was like, oh, my God, we could thread a subplot in here. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the island. So, yeah, there's maybe maybe we are. Maybe we fucking are. You <laughs> expect Terry O'Quinn <laughs> to walk by at some point. So uh... You know what's funny is I can't believe that you didn't – Why? I guess you just don't know Corey in real life. But the guy who looks like Hunter S. Thompson at the end of the movie is Corey. Um, it is? At the beginning That's you? Of, yeah, That's yeah Corey movie. with the broken leg. He started wearing that Panama hat. And I was – at the very beginning of our pre-production – I was like, "Well, Corey, maybe this is you, and maybe you just let your beard grow through the whole time that we're here." <laughs> so when we started the movie, Corey did not have much of a beard, and by the end of the movie, he looks like his Israeli ancestors.
1: <laughs> I Corey had no idea. But all your all your social media pictures are not you in the current look. So oh, that's funny. I didn't realize that.
2: Um, was. I you know I make a sneak cameo appearance in all of my films, Rob. You got to look for me. <laughs>
1: We're going to, have to talk about where you were and never here. But okay, so you you mentioned earlier the soundtrack and Patrick Stump from Fallout Boy has put together the soundtrack. So how did he get involved in this? I mean, you know, not every movie gets a you know gets a re- released soundtrack, which is what one of the things Change Lands has got. It's a, it's coming out on on vinyl. It's part of the reason we're here to talk about it. How did how did he get involved in this?
0: Well, the soundtrack was has always been critically important to me. I love soundtracks as both a movie experience and also a separate intimate experience and so i really wanted this film not just to have music that was important to it but to have a, a standalone soundtrack that that people could enjoy not just the curation of these songs but like you know whatever their experience is with the music itself um and so patrick and i first of all i love fallout boy uh, when under the cork tree came out i was so into it that i i felt A little bit like a fangirl and then i met uh patrick and pete from that band and then over the next several years like saw them play anytime they were around and like uh, just became friends with those guys and patrick had said at one point he was really interested in doing cinematic score um and i asked him like he's so trained and educated and his his act his musical acumen is astonishing um I I sent him the, uh, actually, no, I had been thinking about it, but it wasn't until we had shot it that I actually came to him and said, hey, I've got, I want you on this movie. Are you interested in that? He uh, read the script and came and watched like the loose cut that we had. And we started talking about doing it. And he was really excited to do it. And I so excited and grateful for him to do it. and Then we just started talking about, okay, well, what is this score? And I talked about the movie scores that I'd loved and the type of, continued refrain that i wanted to collect i wanted the the score to have its own signature um and patrick was incredible about supplying that about finding that um about finding we we wanted dan and dory to have their own theme in a way we wanted brandon and pen to have music that was specific for them but we wanted it all to feel like the same composition and i i I'm so grateful. Like, I love his music for this so much. It like, there's moments where it really brings me to tears.
1: Were there scenes where that you wrote in your head, scored to certain songs when you were, when you were writing the movie?
0: Yeah, every one of the songs that's in the movie I'd, I pre-planned. Um, I'd known for a very long time that, uh, Albert Hammond Jr.'s, uh, cartoon music for superheroes would be the <laughs> opening to the movie. Um, and I wrote that whole sequence around that idea because I wanted it to feel Dreamy, um, and a little of their worldly. I knew we were going to do some Wizard of Oz shit with making the the beginning of it pre-Thailand feel, you know, desaturated and kind of boring and muted in its colors. And I wanted Thailand to feel like a burst of energy and light and color. Um, and there were a couple of songs that were so critical. That Otis Redding song, I wrote that scene on the beach around it. Um, and my editor jokes that the one thing I told her when we were meeting was I wanted um, the footfalls on that uh, running through the street sequence to land on the beat drop of 400 Lux. So there's, um, and the, Oh, and the, the Coldplay song, "Rain of Love, which is actually just a tail end of lovers in Japan off of uh, uh, Viva La Vida. Um, but that song, I, I wrote that scene where we're all on the boat going home after the reggae bar to that music, and I, I, I edited, uh, edited it exactly as I envisioned it. Um, the only song that I, there, there was a song I didn't get. It was the, yeah, yeah, Yeahs cheated hearts. That was going to be the close of the movie post the brand answering the phone call. And, um, we didn't get the song. Um, but I'm actually glad Mac, uh, recommended me that Gautier song, learn a little given and loving, which is, the perfect sentiment to end the the movie i didn't want it to be sad i didn't want it to be angry bitter melancholy anything like that i wanted it to be inspiring and that song is all about being open to love being able to not just give but to receive love and it's a really beautiful song so even those kind of happy accidents where i didn't get what i wanted it it wound up working to my advantage Um, The only song that's not on the soundtrack, and it's because they wouldn't uh, give us the rights to release it, uh, is the Beirut song, Nant, which is um, an extraordinary composition. um, And I'm so grateful to have had it in the movie because it's the moment where we uh, make our way from the shore to the areas unknown, um, off into the jet blackness to arrive on a a fire-drenched beach, you know, bathed in neon. Uh, and the song is perfect for it, even though we can't include it on our vinyl release.
1: So how did how did a vinyl release get? Uh, where, where did that notion come from? Because we are going to do it on not just release a soundtrack, but a vinyl soundtrack.
0: Yeah, that was always the plan. Quite frankly, <laughs> that was always the thing. I love uh, tactile experiences and physical totems, and you know, there's something very special about having an album that you pull out of the sleeve and you look at the liner notes and. To that end, we were incredibly detailed in our artwork, in our, in our uh, packaging, and in the pressing of the discs themselves. Like The colors that we chose are all part of the experience.
1: Hey, Corey, can you tell us a little bit about the—you you sent me the artwork for the for the sleeve, and it's really beautiful. you talk about the art, uh, art a little bit? Yeah,
2: um, the art is done by an artist named Brent uh, Shunover and um brent is actually a comic book artist comic book graphic artist he's he's worked for for marvel dc lots of independent people um and he's somebody that i did a comic book with about 10 years ago called mr murder is dead And he just did such a wonderful experience on uh, we had such a wonderful experience doing that with him i just wanted to work with him again so I don't know. It was probably about a year ago when we were talking about figuring out what the uh, the artwork was, and we got in touch with Brent, and he started sending us some samples, and we kind of eventually ended on um, the design that we have now. We're really excited you to know, get it out there. It's, it's a cool.
0: little, it's kind, it's a, it, it's a little similar to the original book book. When when we were taking the movie out for financing, I put together a bound book of descriptions and writings and photographs and inspiration and stuff and some of the the actors that we were thinking about um, but I, I I put it together to look like a scrapbook right or a collection of of, of uh, souvenirs from a trip and when we started talking to Brent we had the idea of making it look like color forms you know those old vinyl stickers <laughs> yeah I had those sure yeah. place all over an environment yeah that was the kind of the inspiration for it you really you really made it look incredible I think
1: yeah, it's really, really quite beautiful. So uh, before, as we're wrapping up here, I do want to ask you guys something about in terms of uh, like use of songs in movies. Do you have each one of you a particular favorite use of a song in a movie that you just loved? And you're not that you're trying to copy that for changeland, but just the same feel of like, oh, this moment will really land with this. And this is the energy I'm going for. Do you, or was there things that you pulled from in your own mind about the really great use of a certain song in a certain movie? um
0: well i grew up loving soundtracks like purple rain and stand by me or dirty dancing or the lost boys um and you know later things like garden state or guardians of the galaxy um i i've always appreciated the way a well placed needle drop can give the audience something additional uh, to your storytelling and 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 that's that's always my favorite use of it. One, one thing that stands out and it's, it's, um, in, in, in reality bites, uh, they use, uh, Ben, Ben Stiller uses, you choose all I want is you, um, in this moment of like cleansing, renewal and, uh, y- you know, awakening for the characters. And it's this painful, um, longing love song. And it, it does so much work for him as a filmmaker. In this moment, like the song does the trick, right? It it gives you that extra push, um, to support the visuals and make, make the audience feel the thing. Um, I love those kind of moments and I, I, I try to find them wherever I can.
2: Soundtracks were my earliest love of music. Um, that was my introduction to all sorts of musicians was being able to pull out the, the old LPs that my parents had and play them on the record player. Um, you know, I think the first album that I ever really got into, and this is scary, would, would it be Saturday Night Fever. Um, <laughs> and I mean, that introduced me to so much music. And, you know, today, especially in the indie film market, being able to use what we call needle drops in your movie, it, it's a it's a privilege. It's It's hard. You're not usually going to be able to, on the size of your budget, be able to afford, you know music that's really out there, popular music. Um, and, and you're seeing less and less of it these days. And soundtracks are just not something that really get produced much anymore, a physical version of the, where we are with music right now. There are playlists that people put together for the soundtrack on Spotify, but unless you're actually a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy, unless you have, you know, the the power of a place like Disney and Marvel and a director like James Gunn, being able to just kind of, you know, cherry pick each of your songs that you're going to get to use is a real privilege. And the fact that this worked out, the fact that our music supervisor was able to get us just about all of the music we want in an affordable way, that was really cool. This is not something I've actually gotten to work on in my career, um, really, is putting together a
1: soundtrack like this. And it's been a blast. What are uh, some, as we are wrapping up here, so what are some of your favorite vinyl albums that you have in your collection? Do you have some stuff that you kind of only listen to on vinyl, just for the sort of experience?
0: Um, a few years ago, my wife bought me a, a turntable for Christmas, and we started um, building a collection after that. Um, one of my favorite things was that box set that the, the, the Beatles put out a few years ago that has um, reproductions of all of their original albums on vinyl with all of mm-hmm. the original album art, which is pretty crazy. But we also bought some stuff like you know, Phil Spector's Christmas record or, uh, some old blues and soul stuff. And then we've bought a bunch of soundtracks that we think are awesome. Um, I've got, you know, uh, uh Lizzo's, uh, uh, what's it called? Coconut oil on, on vinyl, um, uh, white stripes. <laughs>
2: um, I have a very large collection of musical theater on vinyl. Um, I sure enjoy listening to Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber that way. Um, I enjoy a good uh, time to sitting around to listening to a, a chorus line. That, that one is fun. Yeah. It's pretty sad. It's pretty sad.
1: <laughs> I, I will say for my, I have an Albert Brooks record that's never been put on CD or any other format. And so I hold onto that record with dear life because it's the only format I have available for. I just love it so much. So, well, why don't we, uh, the movie itself, Changeland, is available on different streaming platforms. You can get it on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it, and it's available in other formats. But why don't, as we're wrapping up here, why don't we, why don't you guys talk about where can we get the vinyl center? When is it coming out, and where can we get it? You can place your orders for the album at
2: changelandmovie.com. Um, there will be a widget on that page that will direct you uh,
1: to get the soundtrack, and uh, that's, that's where it will be. All right. Outstanding. So we'll have that link in the show notes. So uh, Seth, Corey, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, Corey, I thought it was wonderful when you told me about this film and I went and watched it that very night. And both, again, my fiance and I just sat and watched it. And we were I will say she's she's hard on movies. Uh, She's real hard on movies where if a movie bores her, the phone comes out pretty quickly. Uh, I've noticed that about her. I've recommended films to her. And then I noticed five minutes in the phone's out. like, oh, it's not bad never once picked up her phone during Changeland, never once. And, and when it was over, she turned to me and she said, that was great. That was great. And I said, we've watched it a couple of times now. It's really a terrific movie. I would recommend it to, to anyone out there. And like I said, the, the vinyl soundtrack will be coming out, and that'll be really fun. So again, thank both of you for the movie, and thank you both very much for, for doing the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Robert. It's actually um, really meaningful that you guys liked it.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Please tell your fiance Kelly, um, thank you. Uh, I am so
1: pleased she didn't pick up her phone once. Yeah, it's a, that's, I feel like she could do reviews, like how many times did I pick up my phone? Zero. That means it was great. It's the inverse of what you would normally expect. <laughs> So, uh, again, everybody, I highly recommend Changeland. Go check it out. Of course, with this show, if you want to find the show, go to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. We're always talking movies over on Twitter at filmandwaterpod. I, of course, have my other movie show, Fade Out. You can follow that on the same Fire and Water Podcast Network. And then, finally, if you want to support our network, go to patreon.com plus Podcast, And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice, So big thanks to Neil Whitney and Corey Musa for his support of the film and water podcast. I really appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening until next episode. That's a wrap.
0: This is a very special bottle. The last of its kind. Thank you. Why me? Why not you?